The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. For those of you who didn't check the table down here to my left, to your right, there's an email that Eager sent me. Eager is a, that's not Igor or Igor, it's Eager. And Eager is one of the graduates from uh, Word of Life Bible Institute, Jim Myers School in Kiev. And he's gone to, his, to Zhitomer, which is a village of about three or 400,000, about an hour to the west of Kiev, and has had a tremendous development of his ministry in that area. And these are just some pictures that we put up here of his uh, things that are going on with his ministry. He's got a teaches a Bible class every week at a nursing home, and then his wife has, or he's conducting a women's Bible study, and then he has uh, had opportunity to speak at three or four of the largest Baptist churches in uh, Zhitomer, and everybody wants him to join their church, which he can't do because they just want to co-opt him. And then he's got a Bible institute that he has started in his, uh, in his home, and he's got, that looks like about uh, seven or eight students. So he is really being uh, blessed by the Lord and has a tremendous ministry there. And, of course, everybody that goes over there to teach for uh, Jim Myers gets an invitation to come uh, at least one weekend to Jatomer. And he had one of the men come over last spring and uh, who had as a science background taught on, had a seminar on creation and evolution and they had between three and 400 people show up for this uh, seminar. So if you want to find out what's going on with him and get an update, pick up the uh, newsletter down on the table. Also, we're going to start a ladies' prayer luncheon, not a breakfast. I guess we don't have morning people and the ladies. So they're going to have a... Ladies' Prayer Luncheon, starting the third Saturday of each month, beginning on Saturday, September the 17th at 10 a.m., and there will be more information about that in the bulletin. And it will begin at the home of Billy Joan Westfall, and there will be maps and information directions and all of that. So you can start putting that on your calendar. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we study God's word this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. Make sure you're in fellowship, uh, ready to study the Word, ready to concentrate, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray.
Father, we do thank you that we can gather together as believers to study your word, to understand the tremendous truths that are in your word, to come to a better understanding of the doctrines that you have revealed for us, and to be encouraged and challenged by these principles. Father, we thank you that you have given us, God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells us and fills us and teaches us your word. We pray that we would be responsive to his teaching in our own hearts, that we would be willing to accept the challenges that we find in your word for our thinking and for our living. We pray that you'd guide and direct us in our study this evening. In Christ's name, amen. We're in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, starting a new section of Hebrews. Now, I think one of the most exciting things that we run across in the Christian life as we grow and as we study the Word is when things start coming together and we start putting a lot of pieces together in the Word. And as I've pointed out so many times in the past, one of the problems we run into when we study the Word the way we do, where we are not content with simply the big picture and overviews, but we're stressing analysis of the text, in-depth study, line upon line, verse upon verse, that we often lose the forest for the trees. In the same, at the same time, we lose perspective. We, we fail to understand how everything relates to one another, and we go through a study of Hebrews or Ephesians or Genesis, and, and when it's all done, we've learned a bunch of stuff, but then we go, well, wait a minute, I, I don't really understand the whole book. So one of the emphases that I've developed in the last few years is to try to take a step back as we go through the different sections of a, of a book to look at an overview of those sections of the book so that uh, we can start putting the big pieces together. This also has value for uh, pastors that listen or prep school teachers that they can go in and just listen to what we identify as A-level. I think that's A-level. Yeah, A-level. Get that correct, Laura. A-level headings that are summary lessons, and that's where we are uh, this evening. So we're in Hebrews 2, uh, 5, and we'll go through 4.16. So we're basically looking at three chapters tonight. But this is the second section in the study of Hebrews. Now, I want to remind you that Hebrews was, is, really has the form of a sermon. It's sort of a five-point sermon, and each major section begins with sort of a teaching or instructional section, and then it transitions into an exhortation or challenge. And in the midst of that exhortation or challenge, there is embedded a warning to believers. These are all believers. It's not unbelievers. There's not a threat of a loss of salvation. There's not a threat that maybe if you weren't really saved... Uh, you'd have these problems. This is a recognition that believers in the Lord Jesus Christ can fail and fail miserably. And in fact, as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, believers can end up going through the judgment seat of Christ and, and losing all their rewards and entering heaven uh, yet as through fire, Paul says. And that's the idea in the book of Hebrews. It is a serious warning to believers that there is a future destiny. God has a plan and purpose today for each one of us, and we are to live today in light of eternity. And if we fail to do that, then there will be a loss of privilege, a loss of position, a loss of responsibility in the millennial kingdom. And each point as we go through 
our study of Hebrews builds on the previous points and develops the implications of Christ's present session in heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God the Father and the significance of that present session in terms of his high priestly ministry in relationship to church-age believers. So when we get into this next section, starting in verse 5, the thrust of this section is to develop an understanding of Christ's qualification on earth during the incarnation as he went through sanctification. And as he was sanctified, it prepared him for his present high priestly ministry as he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And all of this is directed towards preparing believers today for their future role to reign with him in the millennial kingdom. So we come to this second section. The first section started in, actually we had a prologue in 1-1 through 1-4. For those of you who are trying to keep a basic outline, 1-1 through 4 was the introduction or prologue. The first point began in 1-5 and extended down to 1-14. And the basic thrust of that was to talk about Christ Jesus' humanity, that in his humanity he uh, trusted in the Lord, he grew to maturity, and as a result of what he accomplished in the first advent and during the period of the incarnation, he was elevated over the angels at his ascension. And that's where we find ourselves in verse 4, chapter 1, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name, that is, a more excellent character than they. So there's that emphasis on his, the character in his humanity. Remember I pointed out that in his deity he was already superior to the angels. It is in his humanity that he goes through the process of sanctification, grows to spiritual maturity, and goes to the cross, and at the ascension he is elevated or promoted over the angels so that he is in authority over the angels in his humanity. Now, the first major point that the writer develops in verses 5 through 14 of the first chapter develop this whole point out, that, and he uses eight Old Testament quotes to demonstrate that the Old Testament predicted the superiority of the Messiah to the angels and that that superiority establishes his right to come back to the earth and to rule in his coming kingdom. So when we talk about kingdom, we have to make the point, make sure you understand this, that the word kingdom refers to his future messianic rule. It's also called the millennial kingdom from the Latin word milli meaning 1,000. Sometimes in theology books you'll see if you're studying the early church, it will refer to this as, as a chiliasm, uh, C-H-I-L-I-A-S-M, from the Greek word for 1,000. And it's the idea that there is a literal 1,000-year kingdom on the earth which is going to be ruled by Jesus Christ. He will take the throne of David in Jerusalem and there's going to be this literal perfect kingdom, and we call it the millennium. And we talk about the pre-millennial return of Christ, meaning that he will return before that 1,000-year reign. He returns to the earth at the second coming and establishes that rule and reign on the earth. 
Now, he will not rule by himself. He will rule with an association of joint heirs, as they're indicated in Romans chapter 8. They're called companions in uh, Hebrews 1 and in Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews 1, 9 talks about the uh, he was anointed more than his companions at the end of verse 9, that quote from Isaiah 61, and that's the word metakoi. And then in our study in Revelation 2 and 3, we've seen that each of those seven letters to the seven churches ended with a uh, challenge to believers that those who overcome will receive certain additional rewards. So metakoi, uh companions in Hebrews are the same group as the overcomers in Revelation 2 and 3. These are the believers that receive rewards for gold, silver, and precious stones that are is a, basically a, a symbols for the divine good produced in this life that's rewardable at the judgment seat of Christ. So this is what prepares us. So in the first chapter, we see this emphasis on Jesus Christ, that he's elevated above the angels, and this gives him the authority to come back and to rule and reign in planet Earth during the thousand-year rule of Christ. Now we come to the first, to the next section. This is actually the second point in this message. There was the introduction. Think of the whole book as a, as a sermon. You have an introduction, the first four verses. Then in five verses 5 to 14, there's the first point, which emphasizes the superiority of Christ. As a result of understanding the superiority of Christ, the author then makes an application. And that application is that there was reward or recompense for obedience and disobedience in the Old Testament for having heard the Word of God. And as a result of that, uh, if there was recompense in the Old Testament, how much more will there be recompense in this age because we have a Savior who has come, who is superior to the angels. We have a complete revelation. Uh, God spoke in times past in a multiplicity of ways uh, to the prophets in the Old Testament, but today He has spoken through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the warning is that if the word spoken through angels met with just recompense, how much more should we pay attention to the message of salvation today, which is spoken by the Lord, because if we treat it lightly or contemptuously, then we will suffer tremendous discipline and loss of future rewards. So there's that application. Now, this is all unpacked even more in the next section. So we come to the second point in the sermon, which is, that we enter our future rest to reign as companions of our Savior. That's what's developed in uh, chapter 2, verse 5 to 4.13. We, will, we are encouraged and challenged to enter our future rest to reign as companions of our Savior. Now, each word of that has a lot of development in order to fully understand and appreciate what's being said. But at this, sex, at this level... As introduction, this is what we're talking about. That you as believers have a future destiny that is called in this passage the rest. It's the millennial rest. And that is tantamount and it is promised to only those who are overcomer believers or medicoy believers, not to those who fail in this life. 
doesn't mean that they won't enter the millennial kingdom, but they won't enter it with all of the blessings and privileges and responsibilities uh, that the metachoi, the companions, will have. So we come to the first section. This is the teaching section in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 5, down to chapter 3, verse 6. And the, the basic summary of this is that it talks about the reigning Son, that is Jesus Christ, who is now elevated to the right hand of the Father, that when He comes back to reign, He's referred to as the ruling or reigning Son. In fact, in this chapter, it describes Him as the captain of our salvation. So the reigning Son had to become completed or matured as a true man that He could prepare a company who would share His destiny and rule as his companions in the coming kingdom. That's the main idea in chapter 2, 5 through 3, 6, that the Son had to become a human being, go through the process of spiritual growth and maturity himself, so that he in turn would be able to prepare a company of believers, that group of metachoi, a company of believers who would share his destiny, his airship, and rule as his companions in the coming kingdom. That's the main idea of 2, 5 to 3, 6. Now let's talk about it in just a little bit. What we see here in this section is a development of a crucial concept in the doctrine of the Christian's spiritual life, the understanding of the Christian life, how it is developed and what its purposes are and what, what the future destiny is. This is developed in relationship to the maturation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the key doctrine that we'll focus on, especially in verses 10 through 16, is the doctrine of sanctification. Now, sanctification is often a term, because it's a big word, it's often a term that's not understood so well today, But there are three types of sanctification that we talk about. Positional sanctification, which occurs at the instant of salvation. At the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you were entered into union with Him, and you are fully positionally set apart. It's positional, though it's not experiential. We still have spiritual growth in this life. That's called experiential or progressive sanctification, the process of spiritual advance. And that is experiential. And then when we're absent from the body face-to-face with the Lord at the time of our physical death or the rapture, we no longer have a sin nature. We're glorified, and that's referred to as final or uh, total sanctification. Now, the thing we need to think about here and reflect upon is that if the perfect, sinless Lord Jesus Christ, remember, He's born without a sin nature, He committed no personal sins. There is no sin in His life. If the perfect God-man had to go through a process of sanctification, then that tells us that sanctification isn't something that primarily has to do with sin. Now think about that a minute. See, most of the time we think about Christian, the Christian life, we think about it in the terms of the uh, warfare metaphors that we have in the Scripture, that this is a struggle, it's a fight. We have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And our biggest struggle is with our own flesh, our own sin nature. And so we focus on sanctification as somehow putting to death the deeds of the sin nature, which is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6. And so too often when we think of sanctification, that's our main thrust, is that this has to do with dealing with our sin nature. 
But there were two people in human history that didn't have a sin nature and still had to be sanctified. Who are those two people? Well, first of all, it was Adam, Adam and Eve, and we'll include those as one. And then we have the Lord Jesus Christ. Adam had to be sanctified, and the Lord Jesus Christ had to be sanctified before there was any sin in Adam's life. He still had to learn. He still had to learn about God. He had to grow in an understanding of God's person, His attributes, His grace, His love. He had to learn all about God's creation. Because as human beings, we have finite knowledge. We'll never have omniscience. So we're going to go our whole life learning about God, learning how to obey Him. And Adam started off having to learn how to obey God. And that is the essence of sanctification. We see this emphasized in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. That the, as the Lord was asked, what's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the idea, is to learn to love the Lord. Well, how do you know if you love God? Deuteronomy makes it clear in the Old Testament. If you love me, says the Lord, you will keep my commandments. Jesus Christ reiterates the same principle in the New Testament. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We see it reemphasized in 1 John. If you love the Lord, you will keep his commandments. So how do we know if we love God? Because we learn His Word, we make that a priority. You can't learn to keep His commandments if you don't know His commandments. And you can't know His commandments unless you study the Word. That's why we put the study of God's Word at such a position, uh, such an elevated uh, position of attention here. Is because you have to know the Word of God in order to be able to apply it consistently in every area of our life, every area of our thinking, so that we can learn to think like God thinks about His creation. And that's the process of sanctification. In order to do it now in a post-fall environment, it's more difficult for us than it was for Adam. It's more difficult for us in areas than it was for the Lord Jesus Christ because neither Adam nor the Lord Jesus Christ is doing it with the, with the problem of sin. That just makes it a little more difficult. Nevertheless, they still had to be sanctified, and our Lord had to be sanctified. So we're going to spend a lot of time developing this and thinking about just how that impacts us in terms of our own spiritual growth and our own understanding. Now, before we, the, the author gets to verse 10, where he talks about the sanctification or spiritual growth process of the Lord Jesus Christ, he goes back and starts in verse 5, with the basic principle that he developed in the first chapter. So in verse, uh, verses 5 through 9, he go, he's going to go back to the fact that Jesus Christ is elevated over the angels and God has subordinated the angels and all of creation under the authority of the glorified Son of Man. And that's the main idea in verses 5 through 9. Verse 5 reads, For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels. And that tells us our focus. It's the world to come. I pointed out last time when we went through uh, chapter 2, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect the greatest salvation, that that word soteria for salvation isn't talking about justification salvation or, or avoiding eternal condemnation. It's talking about the completion of the process in preparation for our future rule and reign with Jesus Christ. And the reason we know that is because we go back to verse 14 of chapter 1, 
Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit, that's a future orientation, who will inherit salvation? So salvation is viewed here as that which relates to that future reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 5, he has not put the world to come, for he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. Now, main idea here is subjection. He talks about subjection in verse 5. He talks about subjection in verse 8. You have not put all things in subjection under his feet. And then his comment, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. Uh, in subjection, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. So the idea here is the authority that the Lord Jesus Christ has. And to develop that, he has a lengthy quotation from Psalm 8. And Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, from the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, quoted in uh, these two verses, emphasizing that the Son of Man had to be made Uh, as a a man lower than the angels in order that he could eventually be crowned with glory and honor. The path to glory for the Lord Jesus Christ, for the second person of the Trinity, lay in the direction of being uh, reduced to the level of a creature, becoming a creature, entering into full true humanity, and then going through the process of sanctification. So verses 6 and 7 in this quote from Psalm 8, emphasized the fact that he was made a little lower than the angels, that he might eventually be elevated over the angels. And what this is a reference to, as we'll see, is to Genesis 1, 26 to 28, that man was created to rule over creation as God's representative. But he failed and he fell. Jesus Christ comes at the incarnation and fulfills everything that Adam was intended to be. And because he fulfills Adam's responsibility, he is then elevated in his humanity over the angels. So that's the basic idea of verses 5 through 9. Then we come to the next section in verses 10 through 18. That the Son had to go through the same sanctification process as all men. So I want you to notice the logical flow of his argument. He had to become lower than the angels that he could be crowned with glory and honor. The reason he can be crowned with glory and honor is because he goes through the same process of testing and suffering that you and I go through, and he passes all the tests 100%. And this qualifies him then to go to the cross, and because of what he does on the cross, he's then elevated above the angels. Now let's look at the development. Verses 10 and 11 give us the main key idea in this this section. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, that is God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, that's us, the body of Christ, in bringing us to maturity, to make the captain of their salvation, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, perfect through suffering. Now, I always hate that word perfect. It never means flawless in the Scripture. It's from the basic word group of teleo, the verb in, uh, in Greek, which has to do with completion or uh, maturity. And so what it's talking about here is he had to make Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation, mature through suffering. So you just thought you went through it. 
But see, the point that undergirds this whole section is that Jesus Christ has gone through every category of testing and suffering that you and I go through, and he passed those tests. And because of that, he can sit as a peer at the right hand of God, as our high priest, as our advocate, and as a source of strength and as an aid to us. I mean, that's the whole idea in this section, that because he went through this, same thing that you and I are going through, He's experienced it. He is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. He can function as our high priest, and he is our source of strength and power, and he is the one we can go to in prayer for help in time of need. He is the one that is prepared. It's not some angel. It's not some other kind of creature. It is a human being at the right hand of God the Father. It is a human being that has gone through every category of testing. No matter what you go through, when you want to cave into self-pity and you want to get angry, you want to give up, Jesus Christ went through this same thing, and we are to follow him in that example. That's the main idea here. Verse 11 comes along and says, For both he who sanctifies, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is going to tell us that at the point of his ascension, he is given a responsibility for our sanctification. It's not just the Holy Spirit, but God the Father delegates that responsibility to the Lord Jesus Christ. For both he who sanctifies the Lord Jesus Christ, and those who are being sanctified, us, are all of one. That means we're all going through the same identical process. He went through the same thing that you're going through. He who sanctifies those who are being sanctified are all for one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them, who? The companions, brethren. He is proud to call us brethren, that is, those who successfully go through the process because there is this kinship between him and us. We become joint heirs of him. And then there are two quotes from the, uh, from the Old Testament to uh, substantiate this and to relate to this. Uh, the first comes from Psalm 22, verse 22. I will declare your name to my brethren. And this is uh, related also to overcomers in Psalm 3, 5, when Jesus Christ confesses, us before God and before the angels. I mean, confesses the overcomers before God and before the angels. And then in verse 13, there is a quote from Psalm uh, 8, or, excuse me, Isaiah 8, 17, and 18. Isaiah 8, 17 states, I will put my trust in him. It's based on the Septuagint text. If you look in your English, it's a little different, but it's based on the Septuagint. I will put my trust in him. That's the basic mechanic for spiritual growth is to trust in the Lord, to follow him, to rely upon him exclusively to help us handle whatever problems there may be. And then he quotes the next verse, Isaiah 8:18, which reads, Here am I and the children whom God has given me. So Jesus is seen as speaking here. And we are the children that God has given him. And he is the one as our high priest, as our uh, Savior, who is preparing us to rule and reign with him as joint heirs and companions. And so then we come to verse 14 and following, which expresses the idea that the necessity, that there was a necessity of the incarnation, that he might be the same as us the same flesh and blood. He is true humanity. This isn't just some abstract doctrine that you've read about or heard about in relation to the hypostatic union, that Jesus Christ is undiminished deity and true humanity united together in one person forever. 
See, the writer of Hebrews is saying how, is showing us how important that is. It's not just some abstract theological principle, but he had to partake of flesh and blood and share in the same that through his death, that is his spiritual substitutionary death on the cross, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. That's our primary enemy in sanctification. And so Jesus Christ on the cross not only pays the penalty for our sin, but he positionally defeats our greatest enemy in the spiritual life, so that he can be our pioneer in the spiritual life. The result of that is given in verse 15. Release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That's the process of spiritual growth and sanctification. And then it emphasizes in verse verse 16 that he is our assistant. He is our aid. He is the one who helps us through this whole process. Verse 16 reads... For indeed, he does not give aid to angels. Once again, we have that angelic theme brought in, that he's superior to angels, but he's different. He was, he is true humanity. He was in the incarnation, created fully human, and he still is at the right hand of the Father. And that's the key idea we've learned again and again in the session, is that there is a human being now at the right hand of God the Father in the highest position of authority in the universe other than God the Father, and that there is a human being at the helm who's running everything, and that means he is in charge of your life and your destiny, and he is there to give us aid in the midst of our struggles in the spiritual life. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels... But he does give aid to who? To the seed of Abraham. And here it is not a reference to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which are the Jews, but to the spiritual seed of Abraham, which is those who follow him in faith and justification. And then we have a conclusion drawn in verses 17 and 18. And the conclusion is that Jesus Christ had to be made true humanity so that he could propitiate or satisfy, there we pull in the whole doctrine of propitiation, all the imagery from the Old Testament tabernacle, so that he could propitiate the Father's righteousness and justice in relation to our sins. Verse 17 reads, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren. The doctrine of the hypostatic union isn't just some abstract thing. It it relates to the fact that Jesus Christ is ready to come to our aid every time we have a problem. Uh, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Now, this verse, verse 17, is the first verse to introduce us to this concept of his high priestly ministry. Now, turn the page, probably in your Bible, turn over to chapter 4, verse 14, which is the end of this section. See, everything from verse 5 has been leading to this conclusion, that therefore he's been made like us, that he can be a merciful and faithful high priest. And then the conclusion of this section, he says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tested as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, you've quoted that verse all your life. You've heard it many, many times. And now you know that it is the conclusion of one of the greatest arguments ever presented in Scripture for the necessity of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
that he went through all of this so that he could now serve as our high priest and be the one who is our ever-present help in time of trouble. Verse 18, back to chapter 2, verse 18. For in that he himself has suffered, being tested, he is able to aid those who are tested. That's us. So you see, this isn't just some abstract theological development, but the writer is showing us that all of these different elements related to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ have tremendous application in how we think about suffering and testing and difficulty in this life. 2.18 is the direct background to that final conclusion in verse 15 that we do not have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses but was tested in all points as we are. Then we come to the, con- to the conclusion of the section. And the conclusion from this line of reasoning is that we are called holy brethren. This is in chapter 3, verse 1. 1 through 6 concludes the introductory explanation and teaching. That we are called holy brethren, that is, set apart or sanctified brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. We'll have to study what that means and all of its implications. Partakers of the heavenly calling. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. The word there to consider is the aorist active imperative of katanoeo. And it means to study diligently, to contemplate on, to meditate on Him, to think about how Jesus Christ went through sanctification from the time that Jesus Christ was born until He went to the cross. What did He go through? What was the process of spiritual growth? How did He relate to God the Holy Spirit? How did the Holy Spirit empower Him? That's the foundation here because Jesus Christ's spiritual life is the precedent for our spiritual life. And He did it in the power of the Holy Spirit in His humanity in order to demonstrate to us that we can do it. It's not impossible. He goes through His life as a man. He doesn't surmount his, the testing and the temptation and the uh, hostility and the rejection in His life. He doesn't go through it in the power of His deity. He goes through it in the power of the Holy Spirit in His humanity in order to demonstrate to us that we can do it and that He provides the same tools, the same skills, the same promises, the same principles He gives to us in our Christian life. And so He is indeed the pioneer. That's where we'll go in in, uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, that He is the author and the perfecter. See, there's that same word, the author and completer of our faith. All of this drives to chapter 12. And you can't really understand Hebrews 12 fully until you comprehend how it is a conclusion from a point-by-point logical argument in the first 11 chapters. So we come to this conclusion, and he emphasizes that we are to study, we're to think about, we are to meditate upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He then goes on to demonstrate that Jesus Christ's faithfulness is compared to Moses' faithfulness. But it's greater. Moses was faithful in his house, but Christ as the Son is faithful over the house. And so it emphasizes the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ to Moses, that he is a faithful son, and that we in turn will demonstrate our place in his house if we hold on to and keep holding on to our confession of faith. That's verse 6. But Christ as a son over his house, 
whose house we are. Now, what house is this? The house is the idea of a temple. Now, what do you do in the temple? Well, in the Old Testament, you had a priesthood that functioned in the temple. But in the New Testament, we are that priesthood. See, that fits the concept. Jesus Christ is the high priest. We're the priesthood. But see, if we don't learn the Word and grow to spiritual maturity, we're not functioning in our priesthood. And so the principle in this section is that if, maybe we will, maybe we won't. See, as a Christian, you can fail to function in your priesthood. And as a result of that, you will fail to grow and mature as a believer. As a result of that, there will be, uh, you will lose rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, and you will forfeit your future role as a, someone to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 6 lays the foundation to transition into the warning, but Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Now, hope always focuses on the future. It's our confident expectation of where we're headed. So the warning here is that we need to hold fast if, we, if otherwise we give up. So then there's a warning, and this warning is based on the Old Testament. In fact, as we go through this section from 2.5 down to the end of chapter 4, there are six major quotes from the Old Testament. Now, in Hebrews 3, 7 to 11, we have the beginning of our warning. And the first warning is a quote from uh, Psalm 95, 7 through 11. And these verses are an indictment of the Exodus generation for their rebellion at Meribah, at Massa, and at various other places during the 40 years in the wilderness. So he begins with a warning that comes right out of the Old Testament. Don't be like the Jews in the Old Testament who failed. Now, what does that remind you of? Well, it ought to remind you of what we read in the warning section of 2, 1 through 4. For if the word or the message spoken through angels at Mount Sinai proved steadfast in every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. And so Hebrews 2, 2 opens this discussion by showing that in the Old Testament there was a revelation of the Word of God. Why? And that went back, remember I said that went back to 1.1. 1.1 said, uh, For when God, who at various times and in various ways, uh, spoke in time past to the fathers. And when He spoke in time past to the fathers, it was spoken through angels. It proved steadfast. And if it was treated lightly, there was a just recompense. And now there's a further illustration of that. Uh, with the recitation of the, of the passage in Psalm 95, 7-11, that they disobeyed in all these different points and they forfeited their rest. The Exodus generation didn't get to go into the land. And because of their disobedience and their unbelief, they forfeited the reward that God had promised them. And the same thing can happen to us. That's going to be the application. That if they treated the word of the Lord lightly and disobeyed it, and suffered those consequences, what do you think will happen to us? Interestingly enough, Psalm 95 is in a group of psalms, starting in Psalm 93 and going to about Psalm uh, 100, and these are called enthronement psalms. Enthronement psalms all focus on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to, to establish His kingdom on the earth. So once again, the author is drawing from a 
a context in the Old Testament that relates to the future uh, millennial messianic reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. So verses 7 through 11 focus on the past failure of the Exodus generation. Now, it starts with this quote from Psalm 95.7, Today, if you will hear his voice. What is that? What did we hear in, in Hebrews 1? God spoke. After God spoke in times past, God has now spoken through his Son. What produces speech? A voice. Today, if you will hear his voice. See, he's carrying this same theme of listening to God and obeying God through to this next point. Not only that, but we, he drives this point home because Psalm 95.7 is quoted in verse 7. It is quoted again in verse 15. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the, as in the rebellion. And again, down in chapter 4, verse 7. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What do you think he's driving home? You better pay attention to what God says in His Word. Three times he quotes the same verse. How dense can we be? Well, go study the Exodus generation. We can find out that that even where there are miracles and signs and wonders and all this tremendous deliverance of the Lord, and these are people that actually heard God's voice from Mount Sinai. They they had a a digital voice recorder. They could have recorded the voice of God, saved it to their hard drive, and played it back over and over again. They had heard God's voice, but they just treated it casually and lightly. So we have this tremendous warning. And then in verse 12, he drives the point home and he says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Now, he's not talking about salvation, failing to believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins. He's talking about you and I, after salvation, that we stop trusting God in the process of our spiritual growth and spiritual Advance. So Hebrews three twelve through fourteen uh, connects the warning today. If you will hear his voice, don't harden your hearts to our spiritual life. He says in verse uh, thirteen, but exhort one another daily. What's part of the solution? Part of the solution is the responsibility of the body of Christ, the body of believers who are involved together in a local church, encouraging one another. Now, let's stop a minute and think about this. See, he, he moves from the warning, Beware, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. But, what's the solution? Encourage one another daily. Now, what do you have to do to encourage other believers? You have to know them. This isn't talking about going up to somebody you don't believe and then mouthing some promise and then moving on in some sort of uh, hit-and-run exhortation. This is talking about having relationships with other believers where there is depth in those relationships so you know what we're, so we know what each other's going through so that we can significantly encourage one another from the Word of God. So that when we see our friends and family members who are going through spiritual struggles or going through tests in their life, we can remind them of promises. We can encourage them with doctrine. There is a role for the body of Christ to encourage one another in the midst of testing so we don't fall apart and fall into unbelief. But we are to exhort one another daily, 
not now and then, daily. That's why a church needs to do things where they know each other. It's a, it's a responsibility of the local body of believers, not just a bunch of autonomous individuals who bounce all over Houston, Texas, and then bounce in here for one hour and bounce out without ever knowing each other. The New Testament does not envision a local church apart from a body of believers that know each other, are concerned about each other, praying for one another, encouraging one another, admonishing one another, teaching one another. In other words, there's relationships within the body of Christ. It's not just a bunch of isolated people. They need to develop friendships. They need to be uh, welcoming. We have visitors. We get lots of visitors now. Have you noticed? There's every, every time we have Bible class, there's two or three new people here. Have you met them? Do you go over and say, hi, how are you? Glad to see you. Well, that's part of being in the body of Christ, not just showing up and keeping your mouth shut and your head down reading your Bible. You know, get to know one another. That's part of the, what it means to be part of the body of Christ. We're to exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ. There's our word. Metakoi. We have become companions of Christ if, second class condi- uh, third class condition, if, maybe we will, maybe we won't, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And the idea there is we become the companion of Christ if we persevere. This is the true doctrine of biblical perseverance, that the believer needs to stick with it in the Christian life up to the point of death, growing to spiritual maturity, and the result of that is going to be positive rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, and we will have become trained for our future ruling and reigning responsibilities with the Lord in the Millennial Kingdom. And again, there's the warning, today if you will hear His voice, God spoke in times past, He's spoken today through His Son, uh, when he spoke in the past, every transgression, disobedience received just recompense. What do you think is going to happen to you if you don't? Well, you'll forfeit your rest. And that's where we come to verse 16. In verse 16, there uh, is a conclusion here. For who, having heard, who, that is the Exodus generation, having heard, what they hear? They heard that God spoke in times past through the prophets. They heard the message that came at Mount Sinai. It has to do with that voice of God and the message of God, the revelation of God, for who, having heard, rebelled. Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt? Look, if all those folks rebelled and failed, don't think too highly of yourself. You can fall just as easily. I can fall just as easily. Now, with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in in the wilderness? What a tremendous image. They just dropped like flies. Think about it. You had about uh, seven or 800,000 Jews in that uh, generation of males, and they all had to die. You do the math on how many funerals that was a day. Uh, was, they spent a lot of time burying people as they went through. the. That's why it took them 40 years to go about 100 miles, because they had to have mass funerals every other day. Verse 18, In whom did he swear that those who would not enter his rest, but those who did not obey? That's the promise. Now, that's when we get into this whole doctrine of rest. And when we get into the doctrine of rest, we have to understand how the idea of rest is used in the Scripture. And it's used three basic ways. It's used to refer to the seventh day of rest in the creation week when God ceased from his creative work. 
You see, if you don't have six literal days of creation followed by a seventh literal day of rest, it impacts and screws up your whole interpretation of Hebrews 3 and 4. You have to believe in a literal six-day, 24-hour creation week. Otherwise, it it just reverberates in many different uh, doctrines. So it refers to the seventh-day rest of God when he ceased from his creative work, and it's used that way in chapter 4, verse 4, and chapter 4, verse 10. A second way in which the word rest is used in the Bible is to refer to the rest of Israel in taking the promised land. When they took the land, they would rest from their battles. And that's used that way in chapter 3, verse 11, and chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. That the Exodus generation would not enter their rest. They wouldn't enter into the promised land because they did not obey Him. And then the third way that rest is used in this section is to refer to the promised future millennial rest. So those are the three ways. So you have to distinguish that as you read through here. So this is a key to understanding the future focus in Hebrews. The two past rests, the rest of God at the end of the creation week and the rest of Israel in the conquest foreshadow that future millennial rest in the kingdom. So then we come to the conclusion in chapter 4. In chapter 4, we're reminded that the rest for us, that is our future position, in the millennial kingdom is greater than the rest that God had for the conquest generation. And in this section, he argues that the rest that was spoken of there was never fulfilled in the past. Therefore, he will conclude in verse 9 that there is a future rest for us. And those who enter that rest experience the rewards for their work. You see, we don't like that concept of works because we think it muddies up the water for salvation. Salvation is not by works, but we are saved for good works, Ephesians 2.10, that were prepared beforehand for us. And we are to, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, we are to uh, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That is, working out the results of our justification in terms of spiritual growth. So the theme of chapter 4 has to do with entering that future rest, which is the experience in the millennial kingdom of our rewards for our present labor. We labor today in spiritual growth so that we can rest on our rewards in the millennial kingdom. Verse 1 says, Therefore, draws a conclusion, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, that is, pay attention and be warned, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. And it's a warning that it's possible for us to truly fail and miss out on that rest. For indeed, the gospel was proclaimed to us as well as to them. What's that talking about? Once again, it's this concept of voice. It's God speaking to us. It's carrying this theme through. God has spoken. We need to pay attention. But unfortunately, the word that they heard did not profit them. They heard all this. They heard God. They got the Mosaic Law. They saw all these witnesses. They saw the, all, the, all the revelation, the witness of the miracles and everything. But it did not profit them because it was not mixed with faith in those who heard. See, there's no trust in God. 
Verse 3, for we who have believed do enter that rest. And there the idea, we who have believed, is, the, is really a futuristic present. Those, those of us who will believe, who will advance to spiritual maturity, enter that rest. Verse 4, he says, for he has spoken. What's that? Have we run across the word spoken once or twice? You think he's making a point. You better listen to the Word of God. Study the revelation of God. This isn't just something you do a couple of times a week. This is supposed to be our life. You won't even have a clue what the Christian life is all about till you make the study of the Word of God your life. This is the heartbeat of your soul. Everything else becomes secondary when you finally wake up to the point that this is for eternity. Everything else just is passing away. But this is for eternity. Verse 4, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from his work. So there is work followed by rest. That's the pattern that is set up, and that's the pattern that he develops for us. Skip down to verse 9. Therefore there remains a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his work as God does from his. What's the point? The point is now is the time for work. Now is the time for advancing in the spiritual life, growing by the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, studying the Word, uh, advancing through testing in the same way that the Lord did, and so that we can enter our rest, that is, our rewards, with the, in the Millennial Kingdom. And that takes us through verse 10. And now we drive home the major application and conclusion in verses 11 through 16. In verse 11 we read, a challenge. Let us therefore be diligent. This is the uh, verb spudazo. It means to pay attention, to study. It's the same word that's used in uh, Timothy, Second Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God. A uh, challenge to be diligent to enter that rest. This is the fourth time in this section he, that we are challenged to be diligent to enter the rest. The believer's entrance into rest depends on completing the mission. And the mission is to grow to spiritual maturity. Why should we be diligent? Verse 4, I mean verse 12, begins with the word for. It's an explanation. Be diligent to enter that rest because the Word of God is alive and powerful. That's the idea here. How many times have you heard that phrase, for the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharpening the two edges of the You know it so much you forget what it means. It comes out of verse 11. Be diligent because the Word of God is alive and powerful. Who's the Word of God? Well, we have the written Word of God, but the living Word of God. The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and the spirit and of joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What's that? That's called judgment, evaluation. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. Whose sight? Whose sight? It's the Lord's sight. Well, where did he come from? Maybe that's what the Word of God is referring to. The Lord Jesus Christ as the Logos. Not simply the written Word of God, which of course is the mind of Christ. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and, the, and, uh, and open to the eye of him to whom we must give account. See, the whole thrust of Ephesians 4.12 is that there is a day of accountability and exposure a day of reward for our obedience or loss of reward because of failure to advance in the spiritual life. 
Sounds pretty serious. It's a heavy note. It is a dire warning that there are serious consequences for failure to advance to spiritual maturity. What are we going to do? Verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Why? For we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Don't get overwhelmed with the reality of judgment. Look at what God's given you. You have a high priest who went through it. He is the pioneer of our faith. He's gone through every testing that we've gone through. So he is not one who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. He was tested in every category as we are. Therefore, let us go boldly to the throne of grace. What's that prayer? Prayer, we have the Lord Jesus Christ who's our high priest, who's ready to come to our aid as we go through the struggles and the suffering to advance to spiritual maturity. We're not hung out there on our own. There's not some oppressive judgment. He is waiting and willing and ready to help us. He is the one who is the chief power in our spiritual life right now. He sends the Holy Spirit within us. I'm not taking him out of the picture. But the focus here is on the role of the Lord Jesus Christ in our sanctification because he has been sanctified in the same way that we are sanctified. Therefore, we have a high priest that we can go to and receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's where this whole section is leading. I don't want you to lose the forest for the trees. It is a tremendous section focusing on our entrance into that future rest in the kingdom so that we can be companions, overcomers with our Lord Jesus Christ, but it depends on our volition today, how we're going to spend our time, where are our priorities, what is the role that the Word of God has in our life. If we are going to study the Word and make it our priority, not only to learn it but to apply it on a day-to-day basis, then we will advance in spiritual growth to be prepared to rule and reign with Him. But there are dire consequences if we fail. If we treat this word lightly, then we will forfeit those rewards and that future position with the Lord Jesus Christ. But the great confidence that we have is that we have Him to aid us. He is our high priest. He is the one who has gone through it already. So He understands and He has provided the solution to every problem and every difficulty with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for the study of your word to understand this overview and understand the role of the Lord Jesus Christ as he is the one who is the pioneer of our spiritual life, the one who set the precedent, the one who lived his life in his humanity through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, that he might uh, provide a spiritual life for us in this church age that he might come to our aid, that he could provide a perfect salvation and that he could lead us through the process of sanctification in preparing us to rule and reign with him in the future. Father, we pray that we won't lose sight of this goal, but that we might have this sense of our eternal destiny that affects every decision we make today in preparing us for our future destiny. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.